Hebrews Bible Study, number 6, Christ over Moses. Hear the word of our Lord from Hebrews, the third chapter, beginning in the first verse. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Three statements. In this passage, the author makes a cardinal exhortation to all believers to consider Jesus. Over the course of all six verses, he makes three explanatory statements which tell us exactly what he has in mind when considering our Lord. What do we consider about him? What is the importance here? First statement. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Beginning with therefore, we must examine the basis for this passage. By saying therefore, he recalls to us the teleological Christology that we went over last week. Christ incarnated as the son of the Virgin Mary in order to save us, to be our high priest, and to suffer on our behalf. Now he helps us as we go through our temptations and intercedes for us. It is also for this therefore that the author restricts these next verses to those who share in a heavenly calling. Christ Jesus is not the high priest over non-believers, and nor should a persistent non-believer consider Christ as being their God or King. Christianity is not a universalist religion, saving everyone. Non-believers, as long as they continue in unbelief, are missing out on a relationship with Jesus. Since Jesus does all these wonderful things, for us in particular as our high priest, we ought to consider him. We must also note that the author calls the congregation holy brothers in understanding which readers this verse is not restricting. He declares here that Christians are already considered holy and glorified by our Father in heaven as people who share in a heavenly calling, agreeing with Romans chapter 8 verse 30. This denies the Catholic notion that one is not rightly called a saint or holy one unless declared so by the Holy See. In calling those who share the faith as brothers, he also rebuffs the notion that dispensationalists and Hebrew roots thinkers might have that this epistle chiefly pertains to the Jews. But just as Romans chapter 8 verse 30 this verse may also easily be misconstrued as a proof text for Calvinism. 
The calling is an invitation, not an election. But is that invitation something we share in the same sense as sharing the benefits of a decree of election? This cannot be the case, as the word metokoi, for share here, is more properly understood to be active participation. The believer hears the call of our Lord, as everyone does, per John 12, verse 32, and when enlightened by the word, decides to actively participate in the Christian faith instead of resisting the grace offered to them. Thus, the author addresses us believers as his holy brothers. We are told to consider Jesus Christ, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is no demotion of our Lord to the rank of apostle, as though he were equal to the twelve apostles. All that is meant by the word apostolon here is messenger, or sent one, someone sent to accomplish a task. This is to say that yes, in agreement with John 20 verse 21, in which our Lord Jesus says it plainly, the Father sent him as our Redeemer and the final revelation. As stated before, Christ is also our High Priest in terms of his intercession and atonement one for us. The author points special attention to the faithfulness of Jesus, who accomplished everything for which he was sent, just as Moses. The allusion to Moses is no accident, given the apparent parallels between Christ and the prophet. Someone might hear the author of Hebrews expounding Christ's merits and superiority over all angels, but then opine that Moses, the lawgiver, is just as special. Moses occupies a special status in the Old Testament as the author of the Pentateuch and the prophet tasked with writing the law, from which the bulk of Israelites were judged by other prophets in the Old Testament. And to make it deeper to some, Moses had special circumstances surrounding his infancy and persecution, God using him to deliver his people, and the clear prophetic status of Moses along with his leadership. Thus is born an idea that persists in how people read the Gospel of Matthew to this very day. Jesus is presented as a second Moses, one superior mostly by being the giver of a new law after the old is fulfilled. Here the author begins to address this notion. Second statement. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. It is easy to imagine the surprise that must have come across the faces of the Jewish Christians who first heard these two verses read aloud to them, Christ the Logos, Christ the Divine, second person of the Trinity, is easy to establish as being over the angels. But when comparing someone human to Jesus, it is frightfully simple to start comparing them to Jesus the man, speaking of his human nature. The author here refuses to fall into Nestorianism by acting as though Jesus were two persons. Instead, he plainly attributes Christ's divinity as being the main cause of his superiority over Moses. Jesus has more glory than Moses, 
the house, that is, the household of faith, which previously was dominated with law and promises, the house of Israel, the house which the Israelites dwelt in, which Moses led through the wilderness, was built by God. And Jesus, the author says, is that very deity which built it. Moses resided in and served among the congregations of the people of Israel. In a certain sense, he was the representative of Israel and intercessor for them. But even if he counts as the house in this representative sense, Christ is superior to him because he built it. We cannot understate the shock value of this statement, which explains what considering Jesus means for the first century congregation. The author is here stating that Jesus Christ is the real lawgiver, and Moses was simply a faithful servant in the house Christ built. The one, then, that Moses ate with in the covenant confirmation feast of Exodus 24 was Christ. The angel of the Lord who spoke with Moses was Christ. To the assertion that Jesus is a second Moses, the author of Hebrews replies, There is no comparison. Christ's glory is as a mountain. Moses' glory is as a speck of dust. Third statement. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Getting into the mechanics of this dynamic, the author is clear that Moses served the God who built the house of Israel. While it is true that he served as a judge settling cases and disputes, his leadership was derived entirely from his place as a messenger, relaying what God told him. Meanwhile, Christ, being the Son of God, means his authority is not derivative at all. It is a real and eternal authority which he has in himself. Of course, this is already established with the revelation that Jesus built the house, so to speak. But the author invites us to understand this implication. Moses received his authority only insofar as he spoke what was instructed of him. Christ has eternally possessed this authority by nature of who he is. The author does not stop there either. The reader is invited to remain a member of God's house by continued participation in the confidence, or assurance, and boasting, a term for exultation, rejoicing, jubilation, and so forth, in the hope God has afforded us. But we ought to notice what this means for the original readership. The author does not say that one is part of God's house, the house of Israel, by descent from the line of Jacob. Instead, he points to faith. The hope which he speaks of is an expectation, as the term elpidos, translated hope, also carries with it a firm link to faith. One expects, hopes, looks forward to all that God has promised in light of what he has done for the faithful. The sixth verse, along with the very first, formally separates blood from faith. One is not a brother in God's house unless they celebrate the same holy calling. Neither are they in the same house unless they share the same faith. 
Despite the name of the epistle being Hebrews, it is clear that the author espouses the same supersessionist view of Israel that St. Paul embraces in Romans chapters 9 through 11. This is in part due to the sheer and massive superiority of Christ over Moses, who by the first century AD had become something of a national figure for Judea. And so the author of Hebrews invites his Jewish Christian readers and initial audience to remain in God's house by faith, forsaking the notion that they would be fine and considered elect only by their blood, which honestly was never a biblical idea in the first place. There was a mixed multitude that went with Moses on the Exodus, speaking of Moses. There was a clear sense where Gentiles were often saved by putting their faith in the God that delivered them. It was never about blood. It was always about faith. It's here that the author of Hebrews simply makes that quite plain for all to hear and rejoice in. Amen and amen.